1: welcome to the nine finger chronicles podcast brought to you by exodus trail cameras the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation
0: and now here's your nine fingered host dan johnson all righty everybody here we go again i tell you what dan in fault um I guess if you don't know who he is, you are probably not as hardcore of a bow hunter as you think you are. Well, I, I should take that back. If you're into reading about whitetail hunting, if you're if you follow guys who are hardcore, if you're looking to become the best possible hunter that you can be, then you should know who Dan Infault is. Uh, this guy. When, when you get a, a nickname called the Big Buck Serial Killer, you don't just go out to hunt for fun. Uh, <laughs> you you go out with a purpose and you do everything that you possibly can to accomplish the goal of killing big bucks. And uh, today, I talk to Dan a little bit about how he grew up, how he got to the point where he found interest in killing big bucks going in and finding their beds and and just having a really overall good bs discussion bs conversation and that's what this is uh two guys talking about deer hunting and uh you know i'm not going to waste too much time on the intro here discussing you're just going to have to listen to it it's uh you know I wanted him on the podcast for a long time. I've got to talk with him before on the uh, Wired to Hunt podcast, and if you haven't uh, already listened to that one, go check out the Wired to Hunt podcast with Dan Infall. That's a really good uh, podcast as well. But we kind of take it a different angle on this on this one here, and uh, start it with back when he was a kid. What got him into hunting? What got him into hunting big bucks like I've already said so enough of that you're gonna hear the uh, gonna hear it all on the podcast today but I'm a little pissed because yesterday evening I planted my garden and it was all done looked perfect I got my tomatoes in I got my peppers in my carrots my green beans and my sweet corn and then it rained like a mofo Uh, For the last two or three hours tonight, and I might have to replant my garden. A lot of it got washed out. It's it's flooded, standing water. So uh, I might have to do something about that. Hopefully, I can save it. Uh, To be honest with you, after this, I record this, I'm probably gonna go dig some channels in my garden to drain some of the waters that water out. Hopefully, (laughs) Uh, but yeah. Anyway, I like I like to garden too. So. To be honest with you, if I could do, and this is going to sound kind of meat-headed, meat-headed of me, but let's say I didn't have to worry about money. I'd still do this podcast. I'd still bow hunt. I'd still garden. And I'd work out. So those are some of my favorite things. Oh, and go fishing. You know, hang with the fam, all that stuff. But, but you know, that's the, that's the perfect world. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Today's podcast is kick-ass. We're going to get into it as soon as we hear from Jared, the owner of Lone Wolf. Talk a little bit about why Lone Wolf tree stands are perfect for the mobile hunter. The thing that makes Lone Wolf the best tree stand for the mobile hunter is the fact that we have a very unique leveling system on our stands. Easily levels left to right, and also the platform adjusts up and down to fit those not-so-perfect trees. Uh, one of the other reasons is our dead-quiet cast aluminum design. That means no pivoting, moving parts or components. Um, super quiet. We're ultra-lightweight for packability. Um, our stands fold to a very flat profile on your back, so easy in and out of the woods, less disturbance, lower impact on your property. Alright guys, first off, if you want to find out more information about Lone Wolf and their tree stands, go visit LoneWolfHuntingProducts.com. Now, here's the kicker. If you want to win some free gear from Lone Wolf, uh, we're going to be giving away an Assault, we're going to be giving away an Alpha, we're going to be giving away a set of sticks, and we're going to be giving away a Climber uh, here in the, next, in the summer months. So here's how you enter. You go to lone wolf hunting slash nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers, no spaces. Lone wolf hunting nine fingers. And you it will bring up this screen where you have to enter in your first name, your last name, your email address, then confirm your email address. And by doing that, you will be entered in to win uh, some of these products for drawings that are going to be uh, happening later this summer. Now, here's the best part, right? Because, you know, sometimes we win, sometimes we don't win in, an, in a situation like this. Typically, we don't win. But that that shouldn't uh, stop you from signing up. By doing that, you will also receive a discount of $50 off any orders over $199. That's 25% off of roughly of off some of these products. So uh definitely take advantage of that. And uh, I know a lot of guys are doing it already. Uh, if you haven't done what I've just asked you to do, go do it. Uh you know, if you're the kind of guy who's like, ah lone wolves are too expensive, we'll never buy it. Now you should buy it. There's no reason not to anymore. Um, So definitely go take advantage of that. And uh, I think that leads us right into the podcast. So hopefully you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Let's get into today's BS session with Dan Infault. All right. On the phone with me now is Mr. Dan Infault. How are you doing today, Dan? Pretty good. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Um so what's new in the world of the whitetail serial killer?
1: <laughs> Just uh out scouting a lot and and uh enjoying a little bit of uh warm weather.
0: Yeah. So while you're out doing all your scouting, do you take time to uh look for mushrooms or or go fishing or do anything like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh usually uh it's the other way around. I go fishing or I go mushroom hunting and it turns into scouting
0: <laughs> I hear that. Um, so you know, today and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording on the phone, but um you can go online, you can Google Dan Infault, and you can find anything that you wanna find about you know you and your you know your theories on buck beds and how you hunt buck beds and all that stuff I think what I want to talk to um, talk about today is all the stuff that happens before that and maybe how you went about teaching yourself to do that so then maybe the principles that you have taught yourself and you've learned over the years um, can translate over to any type of property, any type of terrain, just on how you kind of approach that. But before we we get into all that, what do you, what do you actually do for a living? Is it the hunting beast, or, or do you have a full-time job?
1: I have a full-time job. Um, you know, I turn down most sponsorships. I don't even want to get involved with a lot of that stuff, um, mm-hmm. just the politics in it. Yep. Um, I work full-time in a machine shop, and uh, I enjoy machining. Okay. I'm a prototype machinist, where I uh, I take uh, engineering's uh, ideas and bring them to life, kind of thing.
0: Do you have uh, an industry that you're? Because I had a buddy, and he did a lot of machining work for the automotive industry. So they would send him an, an idea, and he would have to try to build it and make it functional, and then send it back to whoever you know the design was. Do you have a specific industry? that you well, machine for the industry that pays me yeah.
1: <laughs> is uh quad graphics i, I uh, help them um with building uh printing machines and and uh stuff in the printing industry for magazines and such um but i have done uh some work um in the hunting industry with like uh, lone wolf i helped them with some prototypes uh back in the old days yeah and uh, with the cams for their when they tried making bows
0: I got gotcha. you. Now, how long have you been doing that? My whole life. Your whole life, okay. I got probably you. since about eighteen. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Now, you're originally from Wisconsin, right? Yep. Okay, and so that's where it all kind of started, and that's kind of where I want to start on this podcast. Where? How old were you when you started getting into hunting? Was this something that you taught yourself, or was this uh, a family event? Well,
1: um, that's a good question. Um, I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in hunting. Uh, I mean, it was almost like I was born with it. I can't remember pre-wanting to hunt. Right. Um, I started out young, but what is interesting about that is my my family was interested in hunting, but none of them really hunted much. Um, My brother Bob hunted quite a bit, but uh, he left when I was young, so I didn't see much of him after that um so I'm pretty much self-taught yeah
0: so your family were they like the the regular or I should say the average weekend warriors or the gun hunter that just comes out for gun season and then they hang it up for the rest of the year
1: (laughs) well my dad um before I was born he lived in Milwaukee and uh they had 11 kids I was the the youngest so I was the 11th kid (laughs) and uh there was problems with living in the city. Um, so my dad decided he wanted to uh, get the kids out of the city. The trouble was he couldn't afford to do it. Um, yeah. So he got two jobs, and he held two jobs, two eight-hour shifts. Wow. Um, and bought us a house in the country, a farmhouse. And uh, so I didn't see my dad much. Um, and he didn't hunt much. He hunted a little bit, but not much. I can't remember ever seeing him go out deer hunting. I think he deer hunted prior my birth. Yeah. Um, but he supported me and, uh, I went out and did it, uh, and I did it on my own basically.
0: Wow. That's crazy. My grandma is one of 10 sisters, right? She has, she has nine sisters and, uh, she, she was telling me stories about nine girls in a, an old farmhouse and how cramped and tight it was. were all of your brothers and sisters, in that farmhouse, or were some of them older enough to be moved out by the time you guys got the farmhouse?
1: Yeah, we had a wide range of ages. I got gotcha. you. Um, um, so yeah, most of them were moved out uh, when I was young. A lot of my, a uh, few of my brothers went to Vietnam, and and uh, when they came back, they uh, they had moved. So, gotcha.
0: okay, so you know. Not a lot of, you know, you hunted, but you didn't have a lot of family members that you hunted with. And you, you mentioned you kind of started teaching yourself. How old were you when you started going out by yourself and, and, and hunting by yourself?
1: You know, I was, I was pretty young. I think back then you had to be 12 to hunt. But uh, I think I shot my first deer when I was nine. Mm-hmm. But you got to remember that's different times. Um, yeah. Uh, nowadays it'd be a whole different story, but back then people didn't have no money, no food and deer money was food, you know, and and my dad would buy a tag and I'd go kill a deer and, uh, that might sound bad, but you got to put yourself back into that time frame of back in the, you know, um, mid seventies, you know,
0: for sure. Now, did Um, you would go out by yourself. Um, did you, at the beginning, did you have any idea of what you were doing? Did you read any books? Did you have anybody give you advice, anything like that? Or was it just, all right, well, I'm going to go sit in this, by this tree stump and I'm just going to wait.
1: You know, I got some advice from my brother, but uh, not much. And, uh, you know, you'd hear people talk. Um, I did pick up some magazines, usually used ones, old ones someplace, um, but really, um, mainly I just went out and kept trying, you know, until, until I would succeed, you know.
0: So was your first, your first weapon of choice, was that a, a rifle, or did you start bow hunting right away?
1: I started with a gun. Um, but, well, I take that back. I started, I started with a bow because I wasn't old enough to have a gun, but my first kill was with a gun. Okay. Uh, it was easier with a gun at first. Right. Um, back then people didn't even hunt out of trees and getting close to a deer with a bull was a difficult
0: task. Right. I was talking to some guys who w- were hunters way back in the day, you know, in the seventies and, and even late sixties. And I'm not even sure if Iowa had, you know, had official seasons back then, but I guess when the season started opening, it was illegal to hunt out of a tree stand in Iowa. Yeah. So, so that's kind of crazy. So, so then how long did it take you to become successful? You know, when you started going out by yourself, um, did you have any like bonehead mistakes where you, did, did anything just click for you instantly or, you know, share some examples of the, the learning process that you went through as a, as a kid.
1: You know, when I started out, it was all about killing deer. It was killing them for food. Right. Um, and there was, wasn't was big bucks. I mean, if you shot a basket-racked eight-pointer, I mean, for six months, people would be slapping you on the back at the store. Hey, I heard you got an eight-pointer. You know, it was different times. I mean, there just wasn't big bucks, and nobody really targeted big bucks. Right. Um, and even when you when I'd go hunting, with my parents and stuff it'd be about did you get a deer you know it was like bringing home food you know um, so at first it wasn't real difficult for me as a matter of fact I seemed to excel at it Um, killing deer didn't seem hard to me yeah Um, but uh, it was at a at a point um, in my teens when uh, a buck a buck did something that most of the bucks didn't do it did two things The first thing it did is it grew a nice nine-point rack as a year and a half-old buck, and it got through the season. You know, and and, uh, I thought that was something. And I found one of its sheds, and uh, the next year it grew grew a buck uh, a rack as a two and a half year old, big enough for Pope and Young. Okay, which you know had me really excited, and I started passing bucks trying to kill this thing. I can remember my dad getting mad about that and saying, uh, <laughs> "You know, his phrase was, we eat an antler soup again.'" So I couldn't tell him, you know. In other words, I was holding out for antlers instead of, you know, killing something to eat. Right. You know, so I couldn't even tell him if I passed a deer or if I let one go or, you know,
0: how How old were you roughly when when all this started happening?
1: Well, when it came to big bucks, it, it came on later on. Okay. So probably more in the eighties. Yeah, you know, and and at this point too, I had shot a couple of nice bucks, like uh, you know, two and a half, uh, maybe even a three year old eight pointer or two. Yeah. But more random luck. And this one buck that I was discussing, this is probably uh I'm going say eighty six, maybe, nineteen like okay. eighty six. So um he uh he survived and I hunted him and I had a whole bunch of boneheaded mistakes and some run-ins with him, and uh, he got through the year and made it another year, and I made it another year, and I kept picking up his shed antlers, and I finally killed him when he was uh, when he was a four-and-a-half-year-old buck, and what I did was, when he was three-and-a-half, I wanted him so bad that when the season ended, I was so mad at myself for not getting a chance that I went out and scouted that whole winter, which was something people just didn't do back then. They didn't go looking around and wintertime to scout for deer, you know? Right. And I went and I learned all that deer's bedding areas. And I think something I learned early on, you know, and probably because I didn't get into a lot of magazines and stuff, is that I needed to be close to the, where they bedded if I wanted to see them in daylight. Because you'd figure out where they're coming out of, because it was, you know, a lot of it was farmland or something, so you'd see where they'd come out of, and they just wouldn't get far enough in, in daylight, so you just kept pushing that envelope to get closer. Right. So something clicked with me where I needed to find this, where this deer was living. And I went and I searched a whole area and I found all this deer's beds or what I thought was his beds and, uh, figured them out and made a plan to hunt them that next year. And, uh, I had a few real good run-ins where he would have been dead later on in my life. But as a young guy, um, uh, my equipment wasn't good and my skills weren't good. and I blew a lot of opportunities with the bow. And then when gun season came, I got this idea to take my gun and sneak into the bed areas real slow and try and kill them. And, uh, I learned real quick that if you come in from downwind, those bucks were staring right at you in their beds and they'd, they'd catch you. Yeah. So I started trying to come in on a crosswind and, uh, I did this the whole week of guns. We have a one week gun season in Wisconsin, nine days. Yeah. So two weekends and the week in between, and it got all the way to, to, to Thanksgiving Day, and I'd been hunting dawn to dusk, going to all these areas. And uh, we got a little different wind on Thanksgiving Day. And there's one area I was thinking about that had a bed in it next to this uh, like garbage dump from a farm, right. old cars and stuff. And it was kind of in a field draw. And uh, I thought he might be in there, so I snuck up on it. And I was looking at it, and I thought, well, I walked in there. He'd just run out the other side, so I got up on a high point, and I threw a rock in there and hit a a junk car, and he jumped out of his bed and took off running, and I shot him. (laughs) And to this day, that's still one of my biggest bucks. I mean, he was almost Boone and Crockett, and uh, hunting that deer, I think, taught me a ton. Right.
0: And how old were you at that time?
1: At that time, I was uh, uh, in my early 20s, I think, when I killed it
0: okay so you know you you mentioned you started this you started to scout him when no one was scouting deer right no one mm-hmm. no one went into the woods walked around looked for for the beds how did you know at that point what a be, a, a deer bed looked, lo- looked like and how did you teach yourself how to get like You know, the wind, how did you start realizing that the wind played an important role? How did you uh, start realizing that, um, you know, that these, in certain areas, these buck beds are what you need to be looking for? Did did you see deer bedded down and then you realized, okay, well, he got up and I saw, I walked over to it and that's a deer bed? Or how did you identify those things?
1: Well, you know, I I think looking back I think most of it was from jumping deer and then you go over and look where they were and uh you know I didn't put a lot of it together until later on. You know, at that point I knew they bedded in an area and I started to figure things out. But one thing about me um that I think is is kinda unique is that I'm very observant. I always look for the whys. I'm always asking myself the questions, why is this happening? Why is he doing this? What's going on here? Right. And I really go in and try and answer those questions. And I don't think other people do that. I think other people go out and they jump a deer and they're like, oh, I saw a big buck. Right. You know, because if you ask somebody when they saw a big buck, well, you know, where'd he come from? What was the wind doing? Where, you know, they can't give you the answers. They're like, I, I'm not sure, you know. Right. And uh, I can give you those answers because I pay real close attention to what I see. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a real benefit to me.
0: Right. So you know, there, there's people out there who can go in and just be naturally good at something. You know, I got a couple buddies who you give them a golf club, they're going to be good at golf. You give them a basketball, they're going to be good at basketball. You give them a football, they'll run all over the place. Right. But deer hunting's just a little different because there's so many extra things that have to go right for you, you know, for you, a guy to be consistently successful, especially for the caliber of bucks that you're, that you're chasing. When, you know, when you started realizing this, you know, that you were going to try to hunt these buck beds, how many years or hunting seasons or specific hunts did it, did it actually take you to have things click and say, holy cow, um, I've been going about it all wrong. Was it I guess my question is, was it a one-season thing, or was it multiple seasons that all kind of added up to this long learning process?
1: Well, I, I think uh, things really clicked when I shot the buck I just talked about. Yeah. As a matter of fact, from that year on, there's only been one year um, that I didn't shoot a big buck related to its bets in that whole time period. Um, but with that said, I mean, that made it click. And that, made, that was like the aha moment mm-hmm. that it worked, you know, this, this brain-haired idea I had. But from then on, I kept tweaking it and working at it, and I'm still learning to this day. Right. And I don't think I'll ever stop. Um, and advancing, and I mean, the stuff I've learned in the last five years is, is, is amazing. You know, um, at least to me. <laughs> right. But, you, you know, I, I, anybody who thinks that they, they learned it all has a lot to learn
0: right now you know going back to when it kind of clicked for you um you know when I, that that year it was with a gun right and it sounds to me like even back then you originally went into to the timber with with a bow right mm-hmm. yep. how many years let's say like the next five years after you shot that big buck were you successful with a bow um, I mean, did it, did you instantly say, okay, I want to start doing this with a bow or did you say, well, I'm just going to go and do, I'm going to do it the same way I've always done it. And if I get it with a bow, I get it with a bow. And if I get it with a gun, I get it with a gun.
1: The the very next year after I shot that buck, I shot a big 11 pointer with my bow. Okay. And it was we, out of a, a hundred yards from a bedding area.
0: Okay. So that was
1: on the last day of the season too. All right last so th- evening
0: so then as you know somewhere around your early 20s you started you that's when it kind of clicked for you was there anything that I
1: happened- think there's, a, there's a big there's a big event there that happened after i got that first buck that really i think pushed me in that direction and uh, that was when i shot that big uh uh 10 pointer people were coming from all over places see that thing yeah, And one of the people that came to see it was a, um, a farmer who, who I hunted on his farm from up the road. Mm-hmm. And he brought a guy with him that was hunting on his farm that he wanted to see it. And that guy was um, Andre D'Acquisto. Okay, And he had just started casting this new tree stand out of sand. and uh, Or sand casting it out of aluminum.
0: Yeah,
1: And uh, he came over to see that buck and we kind of hit it off. And started hunting together, kind of, not really together, but on the same woods and stuff and, and, uh, getting to know each other. And we really challenged each other, you know, and tried to beat each other hunting and stuff. And, uh, we bounced ideas off each other. And I think having somebody to call up and spend two hours on the phone and discuss how you're going to go after something without worrying about them stealing your spots or anything like that
0: yeah. was
1: really, um, a
0: growing period for me right so so you and andre kind of did were you guys going through this same like this this process at the same exact time because you know when a lot of people when when they think underground big buck hunters they think of you and they think of andre right so mm-hmm. is this something and, and the, the principles that you guys kind of came up with over the years, is this something that you guys, I guess, shared, this information you shared from the time you met till today?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't talk as much anymore. Um, but uh, up until he moved to Iowa, we were we would constantly talk for hours on the phone right. for evening about certain bugs we were
0: hunting or, you know. Okay. So then, you know, as, as you started, you know, as you started bouncing these ideas off of each other, you know, and I mean, what kind of information did, did having someone like that give you? Did it, did it, did it allow you to think outside the box more than you, you were already doing or? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. It, it, talk to us a little he used bit to about come up that. With
1: some, he used to come up with some crazy ideas that you'd think, what are you, nuts? Yeah. And it'd work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, there's this farm I was hunting, and uh, there's this big buck that was like uh, 160s, you know, mid-160s, and uh, we kind of knew where it was living, um, where it was bedded and stuff, and it was like you couldn't get near this thing. It was on this hill. And he'd get up, and you could see him from a distance. Get up and move, and he wouldn't move far enough in daylight to kill him. And he goes up and he walks up into the steer's bed, and walks right past the bed with the buck watching it. Does this huge circle, walks around the woods, goes on the other side of the the the, uh, uh, the whole other side of the bedding area, and and sets up. And shoots this thing as it sneaks away from the bed, looking over its shoulder where it had smelled him fifteen minutes earlier. And it was his plan. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can remember I, I couldn't believe he did that and pulled it off. And he said, "Well, you got to try something." And you know, it, it really you know opened my eyes. Yeah, I guess you you know you can sit back and go, "Well, we can't do anything." Yeah, or you can just take a shot. What, what do you got to lose? Right. You have know, nothing. You you might learn something.
0: Right. So, do you feel that a majority of the Hunters today are are too aggressive or are too gun shy to go in and make it happen. A little of both, okay. Explain that a little of both. Um, gun shy as in as
1: in when they see something going on, they don't dive in and just go after it and make the make or break. It either happens or it don't. Right, and they go in a little bit like uh, too um, stagey. You know, right? they go a little, a little further, a little further. And they think that that deer doesn't know they're there. That deer knows they're there. Yeah. And by going in a little at a time and not making that aggressive move, they're tipping that tipping their hat to the deer. I mean, he knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, a lot of people think my methods are really aggressive, but they're not. Uh, to me, I'm, I'm really not aggressive at all. But when you read the stories of, of my kills, you think I'm the most aggressive guy in the world. But it's when it's time to go in, I go in. Right. You know, it either happens or it don't. And sure, I fail a lot. There's a lot of times, you know, you, you get waved at by a flag or, you know, you step one foot too close when you're pushing those limits with those beds and it's over. Now you got to go relocate them or find a different buck. Yeah. But by, you know, sitting back, watching from a distance, doing the observations and stuff, and then making that, that kill move when it's time to make that kill move is, is really the key, you know, but you got to catch that deer by surprise. Those deer don't get to be five or six years old by making mistakes. Right. They, they just don't. Uh, and especially not on public or pressured land. Right. And it, if, if you don't make a hard, aggressive move to kill them, you're probably going to tip your hat to them. Right. So, you you got to know when to move and when not to.
0: So, I want to I want you to tell me a story or an exa- share with us an example of a time that you failed but ended up learning from that and then being successful on the back end.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> you got to put the pin on me, huh? <laughs> uh It's probably a million examples. I got to think of one. Hmm. Okay, uh, uh, the Rome Legend Buck. Um, that buck, uh, everybody in town here was seeing it in Rome around the public property. They were shining it, shining it legal in Wisconsin, and glassing it and, and, and seeing it, and, and it was running around on the public land. And uh, it was a real big ten pointer. So it was on one end of the swamp where there's a there's an area that I know every time a big buck's over there, are usually beds in this one area that everybody kind of overlooks. So I went out there with a friend, and he went hunting one place, and I went over there, and it was um, pre rut. So I go sliding in, I'm sneaking up into that bedding area, and there's a little doe bedding area before you get there, but it's not used a lot. Every now and then you'll take a doe out of it. I'm walking through there, and a doe gets up, looks at me, and runs to my right. And then where she was, a couple steps later, up jumps the buck, and he runs to the left. And I split him. And I was like, holy crap, you know, he's right here instead of in the the benton area because he was with the doe. Right. So I climbed a tree right away and tried to kill him. And uh, hoping he'd come back looking for that doe because I split him. And he did, but he circled way downwind of me and and winded me uh, about an hour later. So, um, that did it for that year. I mean, that deer got so spooky, I couldn't kill it. And, uh, the trouble with it was when he'd get spooked, he'd go across the road and he'd be on private land. Um, and the next year I was watching him quite a bit and he was mostly on the private land, but I, I had the feeling come rut, he'd end up back in that same area. Um, sometime, but I didn't want to go stink it up. So I just kept the, the tabs on it until, uh, uh, somebody had told me they had shined it in, uh, on the public land, um, just after dark. So I went over there and rub line coming out of that bed and area was open. So then I made one aggressive move and, and moved right in on top of that bed. And, uh, he got up right out of the bed where he was supposed to 75 yards from me, walked me and I killed him.
0: So how far, how far was that, that location where you killed that buck from, the the previous year where you know you, you bumped him the first time?
1: Um probably not even a hundred yards, maybe seventy five yards.
0: Okay. I gotcha. Now, you know, you hunt a lot in marsh and swamp type of uh land up there in Wisconsin, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's where um the Bucks you know, they have they have beds. Now, is this do the bucks up there go back to the same bed on a let's say like a daily basis, or does it adjust per wind direction?
1: Well, they adjust a lot. Um okay. you get one on a routine, you but you better kill it. Right. But you do get uh what I see and this is gonna sound odd to you, but it's true. The older the buck, the more they get locked into a certain area. Okay. It it seems to me the younger ones move around a lot more, but when they get older, they kind of set into those, um, um, certain bedding areas. What I'm looking for is more of a, like a primary bedding area where it's not a bed. It's probably 50 beds in a little, like one acre spot. Okay. And he might move around in those beds, uh, based on a, you know, exact wind or, or whatever, but uh, he's usually in there, uh, or he's in there for a time frame. Like when uh, some some areas they mostly use them during the rut. Some areas they they bed there during uh, a certain food phase. You know, be it acorns or uh, corn or beans or something. You
0: know. Okay. So when you walk through this, you know, when you walk through these. The, the the marsh are are the beds pretty recognizable i mean do they stick out like a sore thumb or is it something you you've trained yourself over the years to identify
1: well uh in marshes it's a lot easier okay um when they lay down in, in low land and cattails and stuff they you know they lay down all the marsh grass or the cattails or, or and they make like a nest right. you know you get up in farmland or something it's really hard to see those beds or right. up in dry you know, hilly areas or something. You got to really get a trained eye for it. It takes a year or two for a guy to really get good at identifying those beds after looking at them over and over again. But in marsh, it's really easy. Okay. It's uh, if a guy was going to try it for the first time or try to train himself, he'd want to go to the marsh. A marsh is also easy in, in that um, the way they lay out with cattails, you can look and you can see where the beds are. You can predict it. You know, they're going to be on the points going out into the cattails. You're going to be where there's a tree in there or whatever, and they'll be in the same spots over and over again. You can look at the marsh and not even scout it and say, oh, there's got to be a deer better there. He's going to walk up that finger and go set up on it. And sure enough, it happens. Yeah.
0: So, so for me, I've tried, I've tried to take some of the principles that uh, you use in the marsh to where I hunt, you know, I hunt in Iowa, the land of ag and fingers and, you know, like a mm-hmm. big, a big chunk of timber with finger going out into an ag field. And, I've I've tried to identify buck beds, and like you mentioned, it's a little bit harder. Do you feel that, and you've also hunted that kind of terrain as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. So does your tactic or does your principles on how you approach that piece of property change uh, based off the terrain yeah, it, change? it, it changes
1: based on the terrain, correct.
0: Okay, no. so talk to me about, Let's say the the scenario that I just um, that I just uh, gave you, where I talk, you know, it's it's a big chunk of timber, it's fingers coming in and out. Uh, let's say you have trail camera pictures of a, a buck at the end of one of these fingers that he's coming out to a, an ag food source. You know he's in there somewhere. So how do you uh-huh. go in? How do you dive in and attack this particular buck?
1: Well, I would look at the terrain and if it's if it's got uh, is it hilly? Yes. You got figures coming in and I'm assuming it's hilly. Yep. I would look for the the um the primary points of thick brush where there's a, you know a hill point um that the wind naturally blows down. So you got probably down there you probably got a primary wind of northwest.
0: Yeah, on on the cold front days and then for the most part it's it goes northwest, and then it goes south.
1: Okay. Well, I'd be looking for um, points that, that that the wind naturally blows down okay. on most common winds. Um, right. And I'd like them to be thick on top. Okay. And those are the spots where I'd expect those bucks to be better. Um, but that said, most of the time when I find a, a very large buck in, in that type of terrain, it's usually in one of those overlooked spots, and he's usually watching um, the hunter's access. Okay. And you got to go in into it about a different way. All right. And that's not to say that's the way all the bucks do. It's just when they get to a certain age, I see that trade a lot.
0: All right. So, speaking of that, do you feel that, and, and I know you mentioned it a, a little bit about you know some of this age class where an older buck may not move to as many beds; he'll he'll stick to a, a tighter core area. Is that is that something that you feel is common, or is, are there and is there other traits that you know, or is there other things, let's say, a mature buck does as he gets older that he may not have done? as a, as a younger buck?
1: I think, I think all books kind of do those things that I'm talking about. It's just, that they get better at them with age. Okay. You know, and as they get older, they start to really understand what they got to do to survive. They start to understand, you know, how to set up to, you know, have an area where you can't get within a hundred yards without them knowing you're there. Right.
0: Have you ever run into a, a scenario like this uh, and I've heard some guys talk about it uh, everybody you get this idea where okay the older the buck the smarter he is the more hunting seasons he's survived some people say he's the hardest buck to kill and I've heard some other guys say well now this buck is very confident and he starts to get a little cocky and starts to make bad decisions as he gets older because he feels hey I've made it this long uh, I'm 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 unkillable, you know. That's not how they think, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, do you have you ever ran into a situation like that?
1: You know, I've heard that said. I've never seen it. I've seen three-year-olds get real cocky, yeah, um, and they can be really big bucks. But I've never seen real older bucks get cocky. But I have heard people say that, and and people I respect say that, but I've never seen it myself.
0: Right. Okay. What about a scenario? Ha- have you ever? Ch- Let's see. I'm I'm thinking that it was five years. I chased one particular buck for five years. This this buck taught me a lot about hunting. Right? How to how to play the wind. Mm-hmm. When to hunt. How to hunt. You know when to lay off. When to go in. That kind of stuff. Um, and I ended up not killing him. The neighbor ended up killing him. Do you did you ever run into a situation like that where you played cat and mouse with a big buck for several years and? Uh, and either somebody else shot him or he he just kind of disappeared with the wind?
1: Well, yeah, that happens a lot, um,
0: more than I'm successful,
1: obviously. I, I mean, you're probably unsuccessful on 50 bucks before you're successful on one. I mean, there's not a year I'm not playing, you know, five or six different bucks. Okay. So, yeah, that happens all the time.
0: Right. So do you, by the time the season starts, then, do you have a hit list that you – that you have put together through your scouting and maybe some historical data on bucks from the previous year, or you found their sheds or, 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 you know, outside information like that, or do you go into every season with a clean s- slate?
1: No, you always go in with those, uh, those bucks from the year before in the back of your mind. Right. Um, you know, sometimes something new pops up that you want to go after more, but you, you know, um, often I'm going after stuff from the year before. You know.
0: Right. Okay. And uh, this is on, I mean, you hunt a, a mixture of public and private ground, right?
1: Yeah, not not as much uh, private, but uh, uh, more of a mixture of public. I'm, I hunt all over the place in public, but I would have one farm that's 70 acres that's private, that's about the only place I really hunt that's private.
0: Okay. So when you... When you go into and I, I asked this to a lot of guys um, when you go into a piece of public ground um, and I've heard a couple of the stories where you know you you make your decisions based off where other hunters are at even at times um, how do you approach somebody who you're in the tree and you and they're walking up on you or you see somebody in a tree that, you know, in an area that you want to hunt. What, how, how does Dan Infault approach uh, a, a conflict? And it's not necessarily a conflict, but two guys running up on each other in a piece of public ground.
1: Well, if, if I run into somebody in one of my spots, I just keep going. I go someplace else. There's usually someplace else in the back of my mind. And uh, usually what goes through my mind is this spot must not be as good as what I thought it was. Okay. Or this guy's going to ruin it. So I might as well just move on. Right. And, uh, you, you know, a lot of guys get real possessive over that stuff, but you don't own it. It's not yours. You know, it's open to anybody. And uh, usually if there's somebody else hunting an area, it ain't worth my time. Right. I'm finding those big bucks and spots where nobody else looks. And if there's somebody else looking there, I don't want to be there. Because okay. they probably don't have the same type of attitude towards hunting that I do. They're probably going to camp out there. They're probably going to make mistakes and they're going to ruin the area. What I find is, uh, people are very predictable. Um, you know, look, look at my hometown here. I, I, everybody out here knows where I hunt yeah. and knows who I am. And I think, I don't think there's anybody in this town that doesn't have my DVDs. And I go in this marsh and still kill big bucks. I go on where people don't go. And you think that this <laughs> would be full of people, you know, those spots, but they're not.
0: Right. So, I mean, have you, you've hunted, several several years on public ground now i mean have you ever had an altercation where you know somebody tries to flex on you and say hey man you ruined my hunt and they get pissed
1: oh yeah i have that happen yeah, sure so um, how do you you know but uh i just apologize and move on right right i don't you know you can't stress over that stuff right you know if you, if you 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 can do one of two things. You can sit back and you can dwell on something and let it annoy you and bother you. Or you can keep looking and, and, and keep your glass half full and make it a reason to go someplace else. Right. You know, um, there's plenty of room for everybody out there. You just got to keep moving. And, and I don't worry about people like that at all. I just keep going. Right. I just, yeah. you, you know, no matter what, right or wrong, I always take the side, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll move on. You can have the spot.
0: Okay. Okay. So then, you know, wind direction, you know, wind direction is important. you got to try to find the bed. That's important. You know, their travel corridors, you know, if there's any pinch points or hard edges or whatever. Now, how often on public ground do you use another hunter as kind of like a wind direction or you use them to say, okay, well, I'm going to wait till this guy goes in the stand he's going to bump a deer or he's gonna, that deer's going to already be downwind of him and you're going to use that hunter as an advantage to your hunt.
1: Well, I, you, know, you know, I've done that in the past a little bit and um, it never seems to really work out good. Okay. And I think that's because those people seem to go to the same spots over and over again. I have more luck, like say when people start pheasant hunting or start squirrel hunting or something, because then they're just wandering around. Then they move stuff for you, um, and uh, actually, my own pressure I think helps me out a lot more. You know, a lot of times I'll take a um, a marsh area. Like if you have a small marsh that says like uh, 200 acres, and you got a bowl of cattails in the middle of it, um, and you you have know, one spot you you figured out is man, this is usually where a big buck beds. Right. I'll take and I'll walk around that whole perimeter of that marsh. Uh, a couple days before I'm going to hunt, but stay away from the spot where I'm going to hunt. And I'll walk that, that transition edge where all the deer bed yeah, and and just walk right through all that stuff, get my scent and everything. And then wait two days and go, go hunt that other spot. And generally I'll have a really good hunt because of that.
0: So you're, you're under the impression that they're not going to bed where you walked. So they're going to bed the only place in that bedding area that there's no human scent, and that's near one of your stand locations? Well,
1: that's the theory. Um, okay. That's not to say they won't, but yeah. <laughs> there's nothing they, they, they always do. But uh, it certainly helps. I, I mean, I've seen a, a a lot better hunts doing that. Okay. And uh, there's certain spots where, getting back to your pressure thing, more on the topic of how you put it, uh, I know spots where, you know, you have mediocre hunts all year if you go there any time during the year. But if you wait, you know, four or five days after pheasant season starts, that particular area is really good. And that's because it's an interior veterinary. that's It's on an island and all the pheasant hunters are on the outskirts, you know, jumping through all that brush for the deer bed. Right.
0: Do okay. the same thing. Right. Makes sense. Now, you know, kind of back to this public land Everybody says if you want to, you know, if you want to kill a big buck, you got to go in deeper than the last, you know, than the very last guy. You got to go all the way back or you got to be willing to walk to if someone's going to be willing to walk two miles, you got to walk three miles, you know, that kind of approach. Okay. Now, I talked with a couple guys who have almost the opposite approach, and that is they hunt right next to the road. Uh, let's say like a, yeah. a, a big trail. Have you ever done anything like that? And has it worked for you? The the
1: majority of my bucks um, come from alongside the road. Okay. Um, I I hunt deep, and I've killed a few big bucks deep, but the majority of my big stuff and the very biggest stuff has been within a stone throw of of the road. Okay.
0: So walk us through that, you know, identifying those locations that are, that, I mean, are they overlooked because they're so close to the road?
1: Right. You know, um, I'm in Southeast Wisconsin and I'm right between Milwaukee and Madison. We've got a lot of real big towns around here and there's a heavy population of people and a heavy population of hunters. So this place gets pressured like crazy. So, um, I'm looking for water. Those bucks are using water for escape. So I'm looking for wet stuff alongside the roads, um, that has the, that has the habitat and terrain. They need to bed. Has the the mixture they need, but it's alongside the road. Um, a lot of times, if there's a really um, well marked access point, like a like a big parking lot with a trail going out that's marked for the hunters to go down, I love that because it's like the hunters just feel like they have to walk down that trail. <laughs> you know, they either have to go keep going till they get to, to the deepest spot, or further than anybody else, or they got to go to a certain point and shoot to the left or shoot to the right but there's nobody that parks there, walks down the road, and then jumps into the water, you know, and, and that's where I find a lot of these bucks. And you hit the nail on the head with your overlook thing because it's not like deer are smart enough to reason like me or you and say, hey, this is a spot where nobody will go. Right. The reason they're there is because they don't ever smell anybody there. Right. Everything in a deer revolves around its nose, and if they don't smell people there, that's where they're, they're going to hide. Um, they don't want to be where coyotes are, and they don't want to be where people are. And generally water is the best thing because they can get up on some dry hump. Coyotes don't go out there. People don't go out there. You put six inches of water out there and get guys with rubber boots on will go way around it.
0: Right. Do you feel that there is an acceptable amount of human scent on some of these public properties that these mature bucks are, are willing to take? Yeah. Yeah. And there's certain spots, too, where
1: they'll accept it. Like... Um, the, the hiking trails and stuff that go back, you'll see mature bucks walk right across those trails after people have been walking up and down them all day long and never even bend over to smell the ground or anything because they accept that there's always human scent there. Okay. They get used to it. You, you know, so there is acceptable stuff. What deer don't accept is when you get near their bedding area, which is kind of conflicting with what I do. But like I said, it's a timing thing going in when the time's right. Right. You know, but they if you get near their bedding area, when they do smell you,
0: they freak out. Okay. So then the, the their bedding area is their kind of, their safe place, so to speak. And um, has there ever been an instance where that safe place has been very close to, you know, one of those hiking trails or, or hunter entrance trails to a, a piece of property and, and maybe why did that particular buck feel comfortable in that location?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, one that comes to mind immediately to me is uh, in, in the hill country, like what you're used to hunting, um, these low accesses on the public property, you know, we've got some little low parking lot and then it's got a low access up the valley and you go up this valley and it spreads out into the public land. And I can't tell you how many times I find that, biggest buck on the property, living right over the top of that parking lot, watching it from the hilltop, right alongside the road. And nobody, you can't climb up that hill. Number one, it's too steep. Uh, number two, um, you'd have to go, you know, way out onto the public land and do a big loop and come all the way back to hunt next to your car. Okay. So guys aren't doing it besides me. And I'm seeing a lot of big bucks bedding that spot right above those parking lots. And, uh, right above the farm on private land, you know, watching the farmhouse.
0: All right. So then, um, so then what do you think? I mean, from, from a, a deer, do you think, all right, let's see, how do I want to put this? Do you think a, a buck that has, that's in a public hunting spot that has regular human scent interactions? will use his eyes more and then you know like where i hunt deer uses his nose way more than he uses his eyes right for for that Mm -hmm. threat level but on some of these public grounds or even it's if it's not public but there's let's say a hiking trail and there's just people walking on a lot do you think that kind of shifts and you know obviously they're still going to rely on their nose but they some of their bedding areas may also be a visual bedding area as well uh, where they, they're using yeah, their nose a little less?
1: Absolutely. They're still using their nose, but but they're using their vision, too. Um, one thing I do see like in, in farmland, like where you hunt, is I see this a lot, is where a big buck will, um, in the morning when he goes into bed, he'll walk um, into the woods um, with the wind to his nose, smelling his bed, turn around and bet, watching that whole field where he just fed and watching the access. And when you go park your car, he's watching you come through that, that woods set up and he knows you're there. Okay. Um, they bet on those edges a lot and they smell the whole woods behind them. Like in those blocks, blocks of timber. Yeah. You'll find them bedding on the edge where most guys would think they're bedding in the middle, but they've, they been right in that transition of field edge, watching the field and smelling the woods. Okay, they use their vision a lot in, in bedding areas. All and right. when you start looking at bedding areas a lot, you'll see it more. Um, usually, when it's a when it's a mature buck, and it's this core area, and you go into that bedding area and you look at it, you're in awe. You know, you're like, "Holy crap! This is perfect." He could see anybody coming. He could smell anything from behind him. There's no way you could get near him or even enter his woods without him knowing. And a lot of the bucks that I'm getting, I'm getting by figuring out where they're at like that and figuring out how to come in a different axis or sneak in a different way or crawl through the area that he can see to set up.
0: All right, so now I kinda want to take a little shift here, and I wanna I wanna add like do do some hypotheticals here. First the first question I have for you about the average Joe Hunter who wants to be a big buck killer, right? What is what do you feel are some of the big mistakes that the average Joe bow hunter makes every year? You know when he when he goes in and tries to you know attack a specific buck or attack some of these hit list hit list deer. What are some of the biggest mistakes that guy makes that ruins his that ruins his hunting season?
1: Well, if he doesn't understand bedding uh, and how they bed and why they bed in certain areas he's walking in and every deer is watching him or smelling them because of the way they're setting up for that. Uh, if he's using the same axis over and over again, uh, I think the biggest one is he's hunting the stand too much, but I think that's you probably already know. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, those are two that come to mind right away.
0: I want to elaborate on that, uh, hunting a stand too much. Um, I'm a huge component of the run and gun. Um, yes, I have stands pre-hung for you know, some of the, you know, some of the days where, okay, I know it's a pinch point. I know deer are going to be cruising through here. I need to, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go sit in this pre-hung stand. But a majority of the time, uh, I remember I was chasing one particular buck and in 17 days, I, in 17 total days, I tore down and set up 25 sets. All right. For mm-hmm. this one particular buck, you know, completely on the move. Do is there is there, how many times do you think a guy can hunt a stand before he that buck is keen to him and says'm I'm, I'm out of this and I'm never coming back until the you know until it's safe again
1: I think when you hunt once you tip your hat right um he knows you're there okay um easy to come through during the night if you're in the right area and that buck is living in there. He's gonna smell you were there. I mean, every now and then you get into one of those situations where you get the perfect setup where you can get into that tree and shoot over an obstacle or, or like a downed tree or something, and get a shot at a buck where he can't walk over and smell where you were. But those are rare. I mean, usually you got to get in there. Right. Um, if you get in there and you get your scent in there, he figures you out. You got to move. So you're playing cat and mouse. You're moving around a lot. You, you're you're playing a game with him. You know where he can't figure out where you're going to be. Or where you're going to come from, or how you're going to access it, you know, or, or he's going to figure you out. You know, he's patterning you while you're trying to pattern him.
0: So, what do you want if you were to give a piece of advice to the guys who hunt the same tree stands over and over and over, whether it's on a small piece of property or a big piece of property? What advice would you give to them?
1: Uh, (laughs) No, (laughs) Unless, you you know, it's it's really true. I mean, um, you you know, I scout properties for people. And uh, I was just discussing this um, with a client from the spring who called me with a question just before you called. And over and over again, I have these guys say the same thing. You know, I manage this land. You know, I, I do all this hinge cutting. I put in all these food plots. I'm out here with cameras. I'm monitoring everything that's going on. And my neighbor doesn't do anything to his property. He's this 80-year-old farmer. He goes and sits on a bucket, opening day of gun season. It's the only day of the year he hunts. And every year he shoots a bigger buck than we've ever shot over here. Why? <laughs> you know what it is? It's simply pressure. Yeah. That's what the answer is. I mean, he doesn't have the food and everything, but the, the deer are going on to this guy with the food plot stuff and eating his food at night when he's not there. When they bet, they want safety. So they're going where people aren't.
0: Okay. So any other, you, you know, the average Joe hunter, not necessarily hunting in the same terrain as I or you, you know, to approaching a season, is there anything that you feel right out of your mouth that would, would give them more success if they did this, these one or two different things?
1: The biggest thing you can do to up your odds is to get mobile, is to just keep moving. Right. Even even if you're not real confident in your spots, you're better off moving than you are sitting that same tree. Right. Just hop around. Make sure you're not missing anything. Um, I know when I was younger, a big key to my success was to start thinking, hey, that deer is hiding here somewhere. I know he's here somewhere. So I'd keep moving till I found him. So I'd make sure there wasn't a 10 acres on that property that I didn't hunt. You know, and I think you just got to keep moving around, you know, until you get an eyeball on and, you know, shift over to them or, or you kill them.
0: Do you think too many guys are afraid to, to do that in, in fear of bumping that, that particular deer?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I posted a video um, of my last year's bull hunt on YouTube, and uh, what I did is I, I showed every setup. It was, like, it was like you just said about your hunting. It was like 20, 20 hunts or something. I had uh, It was a lottery hunt on a certain piece of property. And I had uh, like 15 days in there or something like that. And I, I hunted, in, you know, like 18 spots in 15 days. And it didn't matter if I was on the ground or whatever. And I kept moving to get this buck until I finally killed him. And all I got back were comments like that. You couldn't do that where I hunt because that deer would be gone. <laughs> well, I just did it.
0: that's that's funny well mr you gotta be mobile that's right anything anything else no that's it all right well i tell you what dan i i appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on and uh, bs with us for a little bit uh thank you very much it was fun and uh for for all the listeners out there um if they want to I guess, find out more about you. Let's say for some random reason they've never heard of Dan Infault, where should I send them uh, so they can do some reading and research about you and your your approach towards hunting?
1: Now if they Google my name, they'll see all kinds of stuff. But uh, I've got a good website, huntandbeast.com that's forum-based. It that has a lot of information on it. Um, and I also got a YouTube page. It's got a lot of videos of my hunts and how I do it.
0: Perfect. Well, Dan, I appreciate it, man. All right, thanks for having me on. And there you have it, uh, another podcast in the books. Huge shout-out to Dan Infault for coming on the show, taking time out of his day to record. Also, each and every one of you, I appreciate you guys downloading and listening. Uh, Like I always say, without you, none of this is possible. Also, without the partners of the podcast, we have... Obviously, Lone Wolf, we have Deer Lab, Exodus, Ripcord, Ozonix, Wasp, and Gearhead Archery. Please do me a favor and go check out those products. They support me, and I'd love for you to support them. Um, Let's see, what else, what else, what else? Oh! i always say this and hopefully you guys by now are following me on instagram following me on twitter following me on facebook all nine finger chronicles uh check me out i, I post some some neat pictures i think uh i ask a lot of questions on facebook like uh, what's your favorite site or you know what bow do you shoot you know and have start conversations like that with uh you know other guys that are active on social media so in a way it's a little bit of a forum as well and then uh go to iTunes leave a review and I would love for you guys to to start being active um I want to spread the word about the National Deer Alliance uh, as well um and because In order to continue this tradition and the way of life that we have, we have to be active and we have to support some of these organizations, whether it's a National Deer Alliance, whether it's the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, whether it's uh, um, for mule deers or antelope or pheasants forever or, you know, QDMA or whatever. there are, are whitetails unlimited there are a lot of organizations that you can support that inform you where you can get a lot of information not only about how to become a better hunter and kill a deer but also from the political side of things voting um, how they pass laws and bills related to hunting so become involved become educated and it just makes you a better overall hunter to spread the a positive word about hunting so there's my soapbox speech other than that guys it is time to start trimming tree stands don't do it while you're intoxicated and uh i guess high on any kind of substance Uh, but if you are in a tree and you are trimming tree stands and shooting lanes out uh this weekend or this month or this summer please wear your damn safety harness